It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Belinda Fetke. Belinda, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Thank you, Laban. First things first, how are you? I'm pretty good, thank you. Recovering from a broken ankle, so apart from that, though, doing very well. Looking forward to spring and summer here in Tassie. Now, I understand you broke your ankle roundhousing uh, the the uh, food guidelines uh, panel. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, that wasn't the case, but um, just a little bit, a little bit of an introduction. You are a a full time researcher, but you are formerly an award winning photographer. Uh, I believe you might have worked as a nurse at some point in your former life as well, and now you are this extraordinary, proud individual, and I am very excited to have you on as a guest of the show, but I'm going to let you talk about some of your background so that we can fill our guests in on your amazing background. Where would you like to start? Well, in my past life, I was a nurse. <laughs> Gary and I actually started going out when I was only 16, still at school. He was 18, just at uni, but we had gone to the same school. And I was always going to do teaching. But just listening to him talk about medicine and everything else, I went, oh, I'm piqued, my interest. So I ended up going into nursing and loving it for quite a few years. And then we had a family. So I gave up nursing, looked after kids, and then decided to have a career change. I loved storytelling. Um, I loved photography, I'm self-taught, but managed to get accredited with the Australian Institute of Professional Photography. I became the president in Tasmania for quite a while and just loved helping, mentoring, helping people understand the art of storytelling. And while I would not say that my photography reached the highest peaks, I think I achieved very highly because I managed to capture the essence of people. I managed to capture their story. They were totally immersed in the photography. And I even went to um, Austria to collect a silver medal, which is very high up over there. And, yeah, a really exciting time. I was a photographer, professional wedding portrait photographer for about 18 years, and I only really started to pull back because I've changed career direction yet again and I'm supporting Gary now. Now, for those listening, Gary is your husband, who's a surgeon based down in, T- in Tasmania as well. Yes. Uh, an orthopedic surgeon. An orthopedic surgeon, yes. And in northern Tasmania, there's a catchment area of about 120,000 people. And maybe 20 years ago, Gary might have seen someone with 
a um, an ulcer that needed debriding or part of the foot amputating and maybe even the occasional lower leg once or twice a year 20 years ago and by 2011 he was starting to see a tsunami in the public health system here and he was operating every few weeks and by 2014 every single week um, and that's shocking numbers for such a small catchment area so he started questioning the quality assurance patient safety of the dietary guidelines and the hospital menus that were being served to his patients who were coming in already with complications of diabetes and their blood glucose was going out of control. So j- just just to clarify, so the, the instances of, of chronic illness uh, had just gone through the roof in terms of the work that Gary was required to fulfill? Escalating in a very short time. Okay, wow. So what happened? So he looked into this. He looked into the actual hospital menus and found that in Tasmania, a diabetic menu included three desserts per day. And he went, this makes no sense. Like, this is ridiculous. My patients are coming in and their diabetes is more out of control. And it was costing the system because every time someone has um, high blood glucose, then the nurse has to come and check and they've got to prescribe insulin or other medication and they need to keep monitoring them. So besides the fact that the patient was um, having issues, it was not helping. You know, he was just seeing the costs as well, such a waste of time. And he'd started to understand in 2011 the implications of sugar and processed carbohydrates on blood glucose and on on health. And so he was questioning it. He became a public advocate for taking out junk food from hospitals and challenging the dietary menus, especially for people with diabetes. And he got um, written up in the paper. He had one of the legislators here from the upper house take it to the Senate here in Tasmania and just start to question, why aren't we looking into these things? Why aren't we going into line with South Australia, who had quite a different policy? And interestingly, instead of being lauded and congratulated on the work he was doing and the things that he was finding out, improving people's health, um, he was reported by a dietitian at the Launceston General Hospital where he was working to the APRA, which is the Australian Health Practitioner Regulatory Agency. That's the board and the medical board comes under that and so do lots of other boards like dentists and um, occupational therapy, chiropractic, all of those ones come under this APRA or APRA board. And so he was reported to them in 2014 for recommending people reduce sugar in the public health system. Okay, so let's wrap our heads around this for a second. So someone who is, from what we can tell, like who is their job is to like encourage people to eat the right type of things, reported your your husband who's a surgeon who how many years of medical school i'm guessing it's around about 12 25 40, 25 <laughs> so and oh, oh that, sorry medical school sorry yes about 12 so 12 20 years, years out yeah and is is witnessing the stuff firsthand so where, where do these people where do the dietitians where do the nutritionists where do they get their their advice where are they, where do they learn what they're supposed to teach from well that was the interesting thing laban When I started investigating into this, because I just thought, how can this man who's talking about the science 
He's talking about biochemistry, which he's totally qualified to talk about, be in trouble and be questioned that it was outside his scope of practice to recommend dietary changes. He can recommend um, exercise, and he's not an exercise physiologist. He's done no specific training in that. He can recommend, recommend people reduce smoking. But all of these things to improve health outcomes for surgery especially. And he's being challenged on something as simple as sugar. Admittedly, he started going further than sugar and talked about processed carbohydrates and different things. But this is what it started out as. And the Dietitians Association, I believe, have been conflicted by vested interests and ideology shaping their education and certainly shaping our dietary and health guidelines. And it's become so bad that now we're just band-aiding sick care. And this is allowed. Our dietary guidelines band-aid sick care. And if you challenge health, if you challenge preventative measures, you are, as Gary has found out, in a lot of trouble. Okay, so the complaint was made. Uh, then what happened? So the complaint was made by a dietitian from the Launceston General Hospital. I uncovered documents in about 2016, 2017, actually showing that the Dietitians Association Australia, which is now called Dietitians Australia, they've changed their name, um, they were in a corporate partnership with the ABCMF. The ABCMF is the Australian Breakfast Cereal Manufacturers Forum and they trade as cereal for brekkie. That's their hashtag. And this group is Sanitarium, Freedom Foods, Nestle, Kellogg's, and they were in a partnership under this broad umbrella of the ABCMF with the DAA to influence or to, sorry, for $23,000 per year, the DAA were to use their members to influence, protect and actively defend cereal grains and sugars messaging. I mean, I was dumbfounded when I found out this. And not only that, but within these documents, they'd specifically named Gary, my husband, as targeted for active defence. So when we were finally able to get some freedom of information on the documents that the Launceston General Hospital had supplied to APRA during Gary's two-and-a-half-year Star Chamber investigation to decide if a doctor could talk about sugar to his patients. Um, these documents actually showed that the CEO of the Dietitians Association of Australia at the time had written two letters to Gary's hospital demanding he be silenced. And you start to put all these pieces together and you go, wow, this is, this is big food coming down and challenging. Within these documents, it actually stated that the paleo movement and low carb were affecting cereal sales. Wow. And uh, the most famous uh, paleo advocate in Australia would probably be uh, paleo Pete Evans. Absolutely. And he was named over and over in these documents. But, you know, Marianne de Macy was um, named as well and the dietitians got stuck into her and, and also Farmer about the Catalyst program on statins. So you think these, this group of cereal industry players are very, very influential um, in creating the silencing of anything challenging, um, I guess, pro-grain cereal and even sugars messaging. And I 
got louder and louder. We supplied information to APRA during Gary's investigation, showing them that the expert witness, the only expert witness that APRA used in to decide if Gary was allowed to talk about sugar and processed carbohydrates, has an association with sanitarium going back 20 years. And when I, I didn't know it was that far, when I first started sending them information, um, I've only uncovered 20 years in the last year or so, but I showed them he was working for sanitarium at the time he was making this decision on Gary, actually working for them. And, and they said, it's actually written to us because nothing was ever um, in person. It was always via email. They actually wrote, we don't believe you. Okay. So that made me more determined to track down not only the expert witness and his ties to industry, but to prove APRA wrong. And so after two and a half years, this expert witness determined or helped APRA determine that Gary was not allowed. He was forbidden from ever a lifelong non-appellable ruling that he was not allowed to talk about sugar or diet to his patients or to the wider community. So I can tell you the mama bear came out. <laughs> How dare they take down my husband when he's only making people better. And I um, took over his Facebook page, which had about 5,000 people following him at that time. I started to collate my research more intensely. And by 2018, I started a website saying I support Gary. Well, within six months of starting the website, and we'd been negotiating with the National Health Ombudsman because the only way Gary could challenge this appeal, to appeal, he couldn't go to court, he couldn't use a lawyer, there was no process enabling him to do that. This is the corruptness of APRA. So we appealed to the National Health Ombudsman to challenge the process. And the only way he was able to have his case overturned was that the process hadn't followed um, the regulations they were supposed to. And it was actually a different medical board from a different state that threw the entire case out within six weeks of looking at it and actually issued Gary with a letter of apology. There's never been a public apology so people still aren't quite sure, but we've had it proven by a couple of newspapers that did put it out there. And I can assure you, we have received a letter of apology from APRA for what Gary was subjected to for four and a half years. And the harms that he, you know, APRA says they're protecting the public, but you can't protect the public if you're taking away information that can improve their health. I want people to understand this as well, and you can confirm this or deny it, but the, someone like a dietitian, they have guidelines that they, when they go through their, their training, their education, they have guidelines in which they are to remain within. If they deviate from the, the dietary guidelines that they are taught to promote, they will lose their license. Well, exactly the same as medical people, yeah. yeah. And, and the thing with the Dietitians Association of Australia, they're not only their accrediting body, they're their regulatory body and they provide education, continuing education. And so this group, this parental body of dietitians is accepting money from the food industry to manipulate what dietitians are being taught and what they have to promote, what they have to protect. I mean, it's 
unbelievable. And they ran a whole program with this hashtag, Cyril for Brecky, and they're enticing dietitians to use it on all platforms of social media and then reporting back to how successful it was. And it was written and devised by the cereal industry and the DAA were their puppets. And the members had no idea. Like, you, you can understand if you've had your education, four years, masters, like educated by what you believe to be the truth and how would you feel if you knew that it had actually been influenced by industry? I think I'd be pretty peeved. And, and they're defending it, unfortunately. Well, this is the this is the really interesting thing that I want to sort of explore if we can, Belinda, is that it would be if, if anything that I'd learned in my life uh, that I believed to be, you know, the gospel was told that it was the opposite of, which is what's happened in my life with a few things yes. now, uh, you know, unless you have the ability to, to remove that ego um, and, and realize that, you know, you can pivot and you can adjust like some doctors have done, like some dietitians have done, like some nutritionists have done. Um, it's it's an incredibly powerful force. But but we grew up eating Weepix, and we were we were you know um, Kiwi kids are Weepix kids, and ki- ki- like Aussie kids are Weepix kids. Like this stuff's good for us, isn't it? Uh, apparently, they believe it's good for us, um, and. Uh... It's very interesting, the history of sanitarium, where I had no, well, I had a vague idea that sanitarium was owned by the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but not really understanding. I mean, in Australia and in New Zealand, the Seventh-day Adventist Church have a fairly small footprint. We're, not, we're a fairly secular country, not anything like in the US. And in the United States, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is a lot of their health industry over there. They own 26 hospitals in Florida alone. In Australia, we have one major hospital owned by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We have what's perceived as one food industry, at sanitarium, but they actually have a lot of um, businesses under that name and not everyone would be aware that these businesses belong to the church. They're quite open about sanitarium being part of it and doing good sanitarium so good milk soy milk um up and go which is apparently devised not as a health food i would not recommend if you saw what's the ingredients that are in it but it's to meet the people where they are and take them to where they want them to be so the seventh day adventist church was founded in 1863 and the prophetess ellen g white who was co-founder of the church had a vision that same year that fruits, grains, nuts and seeds were the God-appointed diet for man and flesh foods, animal proteins and fats, were harmful to moral, spiritual and physical elements of man. And when you look into it a little bit further, it, it sanitarium was actually founded by Ellen G. White when she came to Australia. She lived here for 11 years and she founded the health food business. She actually claimed the health food business is to take the place of meat, milk and butter. So we've got a food industry that is shaping dietary and health guidelines in Australia and New Zealand based on visions 
from a woman in 1863 and she came to Australia to set up not only the church, a printing press, which she'd been told by an angel 10 years before that that's where she saw it and, and it should be set up in Australia, but also to set up schools and the church, obviously, but she also set up sanitarium as a, as modelled on Kellogg's in Battle Creek Sanitarium. But this time the church would own it and the profits. So not many people may realise that John Harvey Kellogg, who invented wheat flakes and wheat, um, sorry, flaked wheat and flaked corn, of course, Kellogg's corn flakes, um, was actually a devout Seventh-day Adventist and worked at Battle Creek Sanitarium from 1876. He devised the cereals in the late 1800s, but he was also passionate about creating any sorts of food that would take the place of meat, milk and butter. And he, he was one of the first, he didn't invent peanut butter, but he was the first to patent it. And so he also invented soy, soy meat analogues and, you know, he was always trying to do anything to take flesh meat out of our diet. He, he was only 12 years old when he first started working for Ellen and her husband James, the founders of the church, and he was typesetting her book, the, um, A Solemn Appeal to Mothers, which dealt only with encouraging, impressing upon mothers to stop their children from masturbating. And part of that was not putting flesh food on their plate, on their table in front of them. And she delivered this book. It was only a short book, only quite small, but it was like a sermon and telling all the terrible things that could happen if children masturbated. And this whole point about, you know, dwarfism, epilepsy, um, losing your eyesight, but she actually wrote in this book, it was if you could put a pistol to your chest and take your own life. And he's 12. So he was immersed in all of this for four years and, in my opinion, is it any wonder that he became a doctor fanatical about getting rid of flesh meat out of our diet? Um, yeah, it's pretty powerful. When she had these visions in 1863, she believed that flesh meat and animal proteins and fats were as bad, if not worse, than other toxic stimulants like alcohol and tobacco. So... It's a big thing when you think that sanitarium is owned, wholly owned by the church and they are making decisions about our diet based on their religious ideology. And then you combine it with the vested interests of their corporate arm, which is sanitarium, and the corporate interests of other cereal industries, Kellogg's and Nestle and Freedom Foods, and you've got a very, very powerful group who are determining and shaping the pro-cereal grain anti-meat messaging. My goodness. Uh, I, uh, I've i been fortunate enough to see some of your presentations, Blender, on this subject, and it still blows my mind every time I hear this stuff. Yeah. And it, it, it seems to me, from what I can make out, that, that uh, the dietary guidelines that are in place now are based off this lie this this creation of man not that long ago that has ended up infiltrating our our healthcare system 
and has has totally is effectively ruining uh, health, modern health. And like, I want to go a little bit deeper as well because mm-hmm. from a biblical point of view, I've seen some articles that, and and we will post all the links to all the references in this as well. This isn't just stuff that. Belinda's creating in her own out of her own vision. This is stuff that, yeah, that can be everything proven. I've, everything I've found was on the internet. I have no technical ability to hack into anything or do anything. Everything was there and was available when I've posted and shared it. I found it just and and they're very proud of what they've done. The Seventh-day Adventist Church are proud. They even wrote after Gary first delivered some of my research in America. They wrote an article and referenced my work, and it was called The Global Influence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church on Diet. So they're proud of it. One of the things I wanted to talk about um, is there's a reference that they plucked out of their Bible that's, that's been a part of the dietary guidelines, like a reference about the Adam and Eve diet. Can you explain that to us? Yes, well, in their young earth creationists, they believe in the literal six-day creation of earth and so they worship on the Sabbath, which they consider Saturday, a lot like the Jewish religion. They believe in the food laws from Leviticus and Deuteronomy from the First Testament similarly. No evolution? No evolution? So, yes, there was no role. For evolution, no role for hunter-gatherer, and no role for meat in our diet. The Seventh-day Adventist Church actually state, or Ellen G. White in all of her writings, and she is the most prolific female author in America, if not the world. Like, her work has been translated into so many different languages. She's a very, very powerful woman that not many people have heard about, and it's incredible. So she said that... The God-appointed diet is fruits, grains, nuts and seeds. That is the Garden of Eden diet. And in her interpretation, meat was not allowed. God did not allow meat to come into our diet until after the flood with Noah. If you read Second Testament, it does not say that at all. And so it's, it's a very, very different interpretation of Things. And also in the First Testament, it was very much about um, the messages that God gave were specific to specific groups of people. It wasn't to everybody. So then you consider she wrote that after the flood, people that actually ate meat were punished. Their lives were shortened for their sinfulness and disease came about. So Her belief was even though we're allowed to eat meat, God allowed that from the flood, the time of the flood, we were sinful to do that. And she wrote that in from the, so there was a Millerite movement back in 1844 believing that Jesus was coming again into the US. And it was a very powerful movement and there were hundreds of thousands of people that were believing this at the time. And Ellen G. White and her family and friends were all involved in this movement. And when Jesus didn't come back, people either went back to their normal lives or broke off into a few little groups. But one group that Ellen continued with 
was this group that became the Seventh-day Adventists. So they started forming back in 1845, 1846. They were incorporated in 1863. But the belief, what you know, she started having visions from God and they looked at her as the prophetess and she still is hugely influential in, as you said, that she actually has interpreted the Bible for a lot of people for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So she puts little interpretations in there and they have changed specific wording if you compare it to the King James Bible. But this idea is not only that it's their church, but they have been commissioned by God to be evangelists. And they are to be medical evangelists and use the health reform message, which is anti-meat, pro-cereal grain, as the entering wedge to the church. So if you consider how powerful that message of health is, it's far more powerful than taking the Bible to talk to people, especially in Australia and New Zealand. But if they can come to us and use that incredible marketing tool of health, vegetarian cooking, um, you know, it's it's amazing. So, what are your thoughts on how do you feel about about religion and veganism and vegetarianism as as choices for people that they want to make? Thank you for asking me. I am not anti-religion. I'm not anti-vegetarian or vegan. I, I think everybody has a right to choose what they want, especially cultural, ethical religious reasons. My concern and what I've done with my research is that it's taking away the choice from people who are finding that animal proteins and fats improve their health. And our dietary guidelines, if they take animal proteins and fats out of the dietary guidelines, if they take it out of medical education, demonise saturated fats, which they did 50 years ago, and now demonise animal proteins as well, where are we going to go? And I think it's important for people to understand that this demonization is coming from vested interests and religious ideology, not from biological, biochemistry, not from science. And this is very, very concerning how powerful this group has gotten. I have challenged myself. I was, I grew up as a Christian in Christian family. I taught Sunday school. And I think I mentioned to you the other day, starting to do, do this research, I was very, very confronted that a church could be involved and we didn't actually discuss my research for two years except to show APRA, but they didn't care. Um, we didn't discuss it with anybody because it actually made me feel quite physically sick and I was concerned for the fallout from my research because I'm... I want people to understand I'm challenging the base of some of the beliefs, but I'm challenging the corporate church. The corporate church is, is creating guidelines that aren't based on science, not man's science, as they would say. And the fallout could potentially be that a lot of people who really believe this message, Seventh-day Adventists who have been commissioned to talk about health to their communities, to talk about, you know, to, to give vegetarian cooking classes and to do all these things that they are, truly believe is part of their duty to the church could be challenged and, and that 
is very concerning. So after two years, as APRA stuck their feet in more and more and determined that Gary couldn't talk about diet, and he just said to me, Blender, I'm amputating every single week and this isn't fair and people need to understand why. Totally preventable. Totally preventable. People can still choose to be vegetarian and we set up a, a clinic for a couple of years that could support people to make those changes, even, even as a vegetarian. It's really hard as a vegan, but as a vegetarian, you can do low carb and you can eat healthy fats. But as you know, to have that option silenced, to have low carb as an option silenced from people with diabetes to control their blood glucose, in my mind, by medical regulator being pressured by an association that's tied to vested interests and ideology is criminal. I heard a great quote uh, that made me laugh a few years ago. Uh, <laughs> it was along the lines of um, Christianity, one woman's uh, lie <laughs> about an affair that got way out of hand. And and I, um, having also uh, uh, gr grown up, in a devoutly religious environment, a born-again Christian family, I backslid and, uh, and, and I'm not really religious, but I've become very spiritual. And yes. the thing that's become really important for my own spirituality is, is uh, feeling good. And for me, in order to feel really good, which I do a lot of the time now, I eat predominantly animal protein. After being told that I was not supposed to by medical professionals, dietitians, you know, surgeons, the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah. So for me, I've become very passionate about just unveiling the truth. And, and it seems to me that's all you want to do with this. That's all I want to do and unveil the truth. But also my determination from the beginning was to clear Gary's name. And so not only was my husband trying to prove via the science, I mean, he and a lot of others who belong to the low-carb Down Under group who were advocating low-carb right back in 2011, 2012, um, Rod Taylor was an amazing man to be able to grab a whole lot of professionals together to start to challenge and question all of this. Um, my husband's also found low carb like a lot of people because of his own health journey and and so I'd watched Gary you know overcome he put his own cancer into remission and here was a group not a, so he put his cancer into remission he was improving his patient's health outcomes and he was being silenced by medical regulation bowing to industry so I I just had to share this story. Well, let, let's just touch on this cancer very quickly because we haven't spoken about this yet, but you're saying Gary went through his own cancer journey. What happened there? In the year 2000, Gary was 37, I think, 37, 38. He was diagnosed with cancer. Um, it was a very aggressive pituitary cancer and he ended up in Sydney for three months. We were juggling kids, had one on my hip still, and... Um, uh, eldest was just starting high school. He had to have um, a craniotomy. They took his scalp off. 
just, it was massive surgery. He had to learn to walk again um, to save his eyesight from this tumour. And he was put on to, um, well, in the hospital, they just said, part of, sorry, I'll backtrack one sec. Part of the tumour, but definitely um, got much worse when he had the surgery, was that he developed a condition called diabetes insipidus, which is quite different to the other sorts of diabetes. This one, you can't actually um, concentrate your urine. So it can be um, life-threatening because you can actually pee yourself to death. So they were saying to him, you need to drink you know, eight litres of fluid a day. Forget the one litre, eight litres of fluid a day. And eight litres of water is really boring. I don't know if this was from a dietitian or where it came from because we our heads were spinning at the time, as you can imagine. But he was given often six to eight litres of fruit juice a day. Jesus. Now, he was in hospital for a couple of weeks. Then he had stereotactic radiotherapy. And because he was in hospital and be given all this fruit juice, he came out of hospital and he drank a lot of fruit juice. What you're taught in a hospital to do for your health carries on. You know, this is what you know, they said, oh, water's really boring to drink. So this is what he did. If you now, in hindsight, unfortunately, go back to what his PET scan looked like, which is the scan that they do to find out if people have got cancer. It lit up like a Christmas tree when they put glucose into his bloodstream. We're not suggesting that low-carb, healthy fat or getting rid of sugar out of your diet will cure cancer. But as an adjunct therapy, as something that should be discussed right from the outset, especially now, is just so concerning. Your a tumour lights up to glucose. That's what it's feeding on. That's what it's happiest with. Like that's the fuel that it loves. So if you can reduce sugar, if you can reduce processed carbohydrates that become glucose sugar the minute that you ingest them, if you can reduce that sugar load, you starve the cancer cells. You help starve them and you actually provide health to the surrounding cells. So this is what Gary found through his own health journey and after he was low-carb, healthy fat, keto, he's pretty low because for his own health, that's what he's chosen to do. Um, he's able to put his cancer, his cells into remission, which he was never able to do. He was on chemotherapy for 11 and a half years. Jesus. Um, on and off. And, like, that's massive. And, they, and it made him sick. Like, chemo is nasty. And it kills your healthy cells, not just your bad cells. So in offering low-carb, in reducing sugar load during, as an adjunct to cancer therapy, you improve the health of your good cells. Like, it makes sense. There seems to be plenty of uh, pretty solid uh, evidence through data, through studies now, suggesting that most cancers are uh, metabolic disease or, or fueled by uh, yeah. glucose, like, like what you're talking mm -hmm. about there. And not all, but most, and uh, lots of therapeutic ketogenic sort of um, lifestyles and protocol done through organisations like Paleo Medicina, who I'm sure you've had a chance to um, see some of their work and maybe even speak with uh, Sabertooth and 
uh, at the low carb down under conference. Have you had a chance to? to I speak? haven't actually spoke to him, no. But Gary was in touch with um, Colin Champ and a couple of other guys in the US at the time. Um, Dominic Diagostino, who were doing a lot of research into the ketogenic diet as well, and interestingly, Gary first found out about sugar through um, David Gillespie, Sweet Poison. Why is a doctor supposed to learn about sugar from a lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he went, oh, gosh, I'm a doctor. I'm going to debunk this man. You know, he's a lawyer. What does he know? I'm a doctor. And so there you go. It doesn't always mean that you learn about health through medicine. And I think, I think you know, we had a bit of a chat the other day when we are talking and we just went, maybe academia trains people to read, repeat and reward. And if your education is biased or shaped by food industry or pharmaceutical industries or biotech industries or whatever else, you've been taught how to read research. I mean, when I started challenging the um, Dietitians Association of Australia and some of the references that they put up um, about the health benefits of a vegetarian diet and realised that all or all four of their references, three were from the Seventh-day Adventist Church and one was from the cereal industry, I had dietitians write to me and say, I never checked the references. I saw there were references and I just believed my parent body was giving me the right information. So, you know, we've got the RACGP, which is the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners. They produced a booklet to help GPs navigate type 2 diabetes management from 2016 to 2018 in conjunction with Diabetes Australia. When you look on the back, they acknowledge the help funding from AstraZeneca and Sanofi, which make medications to treat type 2 diabetes. Is it any wonder that this handbook given to our general practitioners on the management of type 2 diabetes does not mention low-carb for 133 pages, and then it's one paragraph. And even that paragraph suggests that maybe it helps, but only for a short time because it could be dangerous if you continue to do it. So you know, this is the education. They are just taught these things over and over and over. And I think they find it very hard to question, not only to question because they just believe their education, but to question it because then the regulatory body expects people to be part of the rule books. So they're not guidelines. They're not flexible. There's no way you can talk about reducing sugar to a patient with type 2 diabetes that could be harming them and be in trouble for it unless it's a rule book. What are your motivations, uh, Belinda? Are you making any money out of this? <laughs> I've sat here for six years devouring the internet and research and I have to say, I'm actually fascinated by it. Now, I've, I've gotten over the determination to clear Gary's name because after another two years, he was exonerated of everything. Um, I think now it's just understanding where this is coming from and I just think it's just really important to keep going. My motivation, I've not been paid anything. Um, I have had a couple of my flights paid for for a couple of talks which is, has been lovely, but Gary and I went into this just to make a difference. He's, he's got a family history of 
social activism. His grandmother actually stood on tables and denounced Hitler. Um, so, you know, in Nazi Germany. In um, Nazi Germany as a Jewish woman. In Nazi woman. Germany as a Jewish woman standing up on tables denouncing Hitler. And in the Nuremberg trials, one of Hitler's um, men actually said there were only five Jewish people that he ever admired and Gary's grandmother was one of them. Wow. So we have not done this to make money. We've done it because we believe it's the truth and because we believe people have the right to know and people should be able to choose health. And whatever that health looks like to somebody, if someone chooses health as a vegetarian because of religious or ethical beliefs, you know, that's okay. But people should be able to choose animal proteins and fats and the messaging around the health problems like meat causes cancer, meat causes, well, go back, meat causes masturbation, meat causes cancer, meat causes heart disease, you know, all of these things. If you look at all of the research and where it's come from, I can guarantee you most of it, if not all, has come from vested interests or religious ideology. And now because, you know, Sanitarium has a very health-washed branding. They look good. They provide resources for GPs to print out to give to patients, all beautifully branded with Sanitarium, of course, promoting wheat mix and the Garden of Eden diet. Um, it does, they do admit that maybe a little bit of lean meat is okay because I think otherwise they'd be in trouble. But, you know, it's branded with Sanitarium. And... Most people don't understand that they actually have a lot of brands underneath that umbrella. And they've got a group called the Life Health Foods. And there's, you have to dig hard to find that they're attached to Sanitarium. They do put on their website, but when you go to Life Health Foods or you look at the alternative meat company or you look at all these other brands under the Life Health Foods, there's no association to Sanitarium. And the alternative meat company just looked like a vegan activism page you know promoting the fake meats whatever else and talk about how cows are damaging the planet and so sanitarium distances itself from the activism appearance but they're there and this life health foods only a couple of years ago were already stating online in an article in the adventist review that you know they were making profits beyond what they expected because of millennials looking for world solutions so they're promoting all of this propaganda about meat causing you know global warming when you consider that there were more bison roaming this earth before man started creating cars and planes and oil <laughs> you know investing in oil and things so yeah, this makes no sense no sense to be blaming cows for all of these problems when humans are the problem. And I saw that Greta Thunberg is being presented with an honorary doc uh, doctorate uh, at the, the ripe old age of 17, I think she might be. So mm -hmm. she will now be forever known as Dr Thunberg, which um, my views on, on the puppeteering that's going on around um, her and her agenda uh, don't even get me started on that as well. But do you believe in God, Belinda? 
I think all of this research has very much shattered a lot of my thoughts and beliefs. Like you and the spiritual person, Gary, actually wrote a book called Inversion quite a few years ago, very much detailing you know, our spiritual being. So I think, unfortunately, from religion, and I don't want to alienate people who do believe, but my beliefs have changed. Gary and I did a tour of Europe a few years ago and just looking at how much religion, I don't know, um, it dictates so much. Looking at things like, you know, St Andrews was torn down by a group that decided that Catholicism was terrible. You've got massive decimation of people from religious wars that we just don't hear about in our, in our history lessons. And it's quite fascinating looking back into it all. There was a group of American Indigenous Indians that when white Christians came to them, told them that they weren't allowed because the men and women all had long plaits. They wore similar clothes. They had people that were half and half. They weren't quite male. They weren't quite female, you know. And the Christians came in and said, this is not to be. You have to wear male clothes. You have to wear female clothes. Men have to have shorter hair, you know. Who decides? You know, you look at the Australian Aboriginals and all the Western A. Price came around in the 1930s and looked at these incredible specimens, these beautiful peoples who were so healthy and so well. And white man came and bought sugar, flour. Christianity came, told them they can't live like they're living. That I don't know. I'm, I'm very challenged by the whole thing. I think for me, Christianity gave me a lot of support when I was quite lonely in my 20s, we'd moved um, states and I hadn't really met a lot of people. And I became part of a beautiful church that in my mind, and even looking back now, they supported a small community and for only all the right reasons. Um, so there's a lot of good, a lot of people who are doing a lot of good, but there's also some bad things that have happened through religion. The reason I asked that question is, and what my what my ver version or variation of God looks like, I'm a bit like you. I'm not 100 percent sure exactly, but what would God, if he or she existed, want us to eat? If you look at our biochemistry, our physiology, our anatomy we should be eating things that are nutrient dense and provide all the macro and micronutrients. A vegan diet, or as Seventh-day Adventists call it, a total vegetarian diet because they don't like the association with activism, um, is nutrient deficient. Or you have to eat a hell of a lot of calories to come anywhere near it. I don't believe that our bodies digest vegetable proteins in the same way as they do animal proteins from what I've heard and what I've read, but I'm not a scientist, so don't quote me on everything. But 
a vegetarian diet, I did, I was, I was thinking about it. I, I've been researching Seventh-day Adventist diets and, and their ideology for a very, very long time. If someone chooses to do a vegetarian diet or a total vegetarian diet or become vegan, I highly recommend you get onto the Seventh-day Adventist Church website and look at their resources because they want to prove that it's healthy and they honestly have the best resources in the world about how to achieve those diets healthily. There's a lot of supplementation, but honestly, they've, they've been researching it for years. So I think research started back in um, the 1940s, a guy called Mervyn Harding. He wanted to prove that their diet was okay. The College of Medical Evangelists, where he was based, were nervous about it, but he went and did his doctoral dissertation with Fred Stair at Harvard University. So Fred Stair might ring a few bells to people who know about the McGovern Report and Harvard's involvement or Fred Stair's involvement with the sugar industry and demonising saturated fat and minimising the harms of sugar. Well, he was Mervyn Harding's doctoral supervisor. And, of course, how perfect to have someone with no vested interest, an ideological belief that fruits, grains, nuts and seeds were perfect, perfect demonising saturated fats because of ideology, to come and do research which could then be published without food industry funding, yeah, that's just my interpretation. Um, so, yeah, they started publishing their work in the 1950s, got the American Dietetics Association interested in this work, the, uh, the American Medical Association interested in the work and certainly took it through to the McGovern Report in 1977. So that was the start of the Adventist Health Studies. And if you look, most of the vegetarian, vegan-promoting research um, references Adventist health studies as being the healthy way to go. But Mervyn Harding actually wrote that he was doing research to prove divine inspiration. You know, so these are people who, you know, and he did, as I say, the research that they've done creates the best resources for eating vegetarian and vegan ways. But it's not based on the best science. This is the argument that I have that I firmly believe, Blinda, that if people knew exactly what they were doing to their bodies when doing a, in particular, a, a plant-only diet or vegan, whatever you want to call it, if you want to take the activism out of it, even that, vegetarian, that's what done. <laughs> yeah, even vegetarianism, for me, if you knew what was going on, you wouldn't do it. You would not do it. And, and I've got something that's really controversial that I'd, that I'd like to talk about. My take on modern society now is that when you look at how crazy the world is becoming, yes, we've been advancing with technology and, you know, some amazing leaps forward. But I, I honestly feel that this is a theory only, that the majority of the issues in the world are a direct result of new, like nutrient deficiencies in in human beings, and when you get a groundswell of people that are that are poisoned by a modern, you know, Western diet, standard American diet, whatever, 
the, the, the effect that I found it had on my mental health and the choices that I made when I was in that state, a lot of them which were really, really negative, there has to be a direct link between eating a species-centric diet and proper mental health and high-functioning you know, human beings, which is what, what we are seeing is going to the dogs uh, in, in, at least in the Western world at the moment. It's a very, very powerful comment and what a great summary of it all. Um, I totally agree. And if you think, well, from my point of view, my research, it's about profit. Like there's just so much profit in processed food. But, yes, how many people, how do you control the people? Didn't Kissinger say control the food supply, control the people? Um, Marie Antoinette, feed the, feed the masses gruel. I think the problem with today's society along those lines is that people don't believe they're missing out by not eating meat because they can eat sugar. They can eat a Domino's pizza. Like I saw somewhere that I think it's 18 eggs is the same amount of calories as one Domino pizza. But how much easier is it to eat a whole Domino's pizza than 18 eggs? Um, our society doesn't believe they're missing out and it's cheap. And they can afford it. And you just go, oh, my gosh, are you not thinking about your health? We should be supporting local farmers. We should be supporting those that are rearing animals on pastures and growing local vegetables and whatever else. Like, we need to come back to community because industry, Gary, Gary said it's like the feedlot, you know, of, of cattle in America. We're putting people into cities, into little units and we're feedlotting them feedlotting them fast takeaway cheap nutrient poor foods and they think it's good and that's concerning uh, yeah it's a it's a it's a pretty um terrifying observation Belinda, and one thing uh that i've grappled with at times is that this this burden of knowledge now that that you have especially and that i've you know that i'm learning as well i i i i was curious to know do you ever have days where you're like like humankind is over like do you have days like that or are you a bit more optimistic about things i think there've been times when i've when i honestly thought that we'd never get through the apra um investigation and during that time when my husband was being mobbed, bullied, um, intimidated in his workplace, in our community by people, it's a very, very challenging time. And luckily, we've been on the same trajectory for a very, very long time, 40 years this year, that Congratulations. when one person has had moments of not feeling so strong, the other person's been there. I've supported Gary through his revelations on nutrition um, I haven't delved into it a lot I understand enough because of my nursing background and he simplifies things in a beautiful way to make it really approachable and understandable but he has supported me every step of the way with the research that I've done and when he went to present it in America he um actually just said, look, I've just believed everything. I better actually double check it all and reference <laughs> all of this because, wow, actually, I, I need to make sure. And 
Yeah, so he referenced everything and, in, and he just went, oh, my, far out. I just, I just can't believe how deep this is. Again, a lot of my research has gone into very deep and dark places, which I haven't delved into, well, sorry, I haven't dwelt on because my main message is let's just challenge the dietary guidelines that I believe are harming people. Um, so, you know, when you start looking at John Harvey Kellogg and his eugenic practices and you start looking at what he did for circumcision and pouring carbolic acid onto girls, he and Ellen G. White patented um, or he he patented while working with Ellen G. White cages, general cages for children to stop them being able to touch themselves. He blamed, they blamed. Like a chest epilepsy. belt kind of thing. Yeah, epilepsy on masturbating. So if a child came to the hospital because they had epilepsy, they believed it was because they were masturbating and they had to stop this child masturbating. He performed circumcisions with a phimosis, so the penis was permanently bent to a little bit. He actually stitched silver sutures over the end of the glands so that they couldn't become erect when they were children. Like all of these things, like there's really dark things. And, you know, so you th think Kellogg's, there's a guy, Mental Floss, it's a website, and he wrote that Kellogg's cornflakes was just part of an anti-masturbation crusade. But when you look into some of the deep, dark things and, you know, it, there's quite dark stories intertwined a lot of the things that Ellen first came out talking about, you know, with um, when Jesus didn't come back, she believed, like a lot of others at the time, that it was shut door and only the believers at that specific time were going to be able to go to heaven, even though he didn't come to earth, that there was no possibility for anyone else to be able to go as well. A lot of those writings and things, it's just from people who, learned many, many years ago or part of the church and then left the church have written down these things, but it's been taken away. Like you, you've got to hide some of these things. And certainly when you look at um, the eugenic society, again, that wasn't necessarily part of the Seventh-day Adventist church, but the eugenics groups met at Battle Creek Sanitarium and the early ones, John Harvey Kellogg was a founder of it, and he believed in racial purity, but not necessarily getting rid of people, <laughs> just but very much into sterilisation and who married whom and whatever else. Hitler went to America to find out all of these things about eugenics. Like, you know, you, we challenge Hitler on the terrible things that they did, but he learned a lot about it from America. And voluntary, voluntary sterilisation voluntary sterilization wasn't abolished in America until the 1970s. People were still paid $1,000 per point on, you know, their um, intellectual tests that they did below. They were paid money if they chose to be voluntarily sterilised. I think, like, the whole thing's just fascinating. Like, there's so much in history that we just do not know about. And for me, understanding, well, um, Lena Cooper, who started the American Dietetics Association, she was co-founder. She was a protege of John Harvey Kellogg and Ella Eaton Kellogg. She trained at Battle Creek Sanitarium. Um, she founded the American Dietetic Association. 
based on the beliefs that fruit, grains, nuts and seeds were the God-appointed diet for man. The, I think there was um, Kathleen Zolba was the first recognised Seventh-day Adventist church president and when she was president, you know, things were getting through about vegetarian diets and uh, there's just so much in the history looking back and how much influence they've had and they continue to have on our diet. The fellow who wrote The Global Influence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church on Diet, one of the co-authors was a man named Joan Sabat, who is principal in the climate change group, that have, climate and environment, that have, department that has been developed at Loma Linda University, the flagship university of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in America. Not only that, he was on the US 2020 Dietary Guidelines Committee this year. And his panel of four, so it wasn't just on the Dietary Guidelines Committee pushing for a vegetarian vegan diet, but he was on a panel that was determining how the caps on saturated fats. And they were trying to, they are trying to reduce it from 10% down to seven, if not zero. And he has an incredible bias in pursuing that. Two others on the panel of four are attached to the International Life Sciences Institute, have ties, which is ILSI, founded by Coca-Cola in 1978. And the other person has been a lifelong vegetarian and what, what is her ideology background? Can't quite find it, but she doesn't believe in animal proteins and fats. So this is a panel that's so biased, making dietary guidelines in the US right now and the Western world follows what the US determines. Jesus Christ, Blinda. <laughs> Christ. <laughs> I, uh, I was just thinking I would love, I don't know whether um, LNG White is, was cremated or not. I would love. No, they can't be cremated because they believe in being raised from the dead. They're not allowed to be cremated. Well, this is good. I, maybe, maybe we do a little wee whip around and get a GoFundMe and we dig up their bones <clears throat> and isotope them <laughs> and see see a couple of things. See whether they were eating meat because you can uh, or animal protein, you can tell that now. And and if they weren't, as in like do as I say, not as I do kind of thing, and if they weren't, their it sounds like they weren't because their behaviour and, and the catalog and that sound like they were doing things of people that were mentally ill or deficient in key nutrition that would allow them their brains to function in like a normal you know evolved human being that's that's some barbaric uh, I stuff don't think, doing. I don't think you need to do your go fund me because there've been people who worked for Ellen G White and have written books like there's a lot of actual books out there from ex-adventists um Ronald Numbers wrote the prophetess of health yeah prophetess of health and he got um, excommunicated from the church for challenging and questioning things. But his role, he was a multi-generation Seventh-day Adventist. His family had been very high up in the general conference and all sorts of things. And as far as I can determine, he was lecturing at Loma Linda University and he wanted some background for his medical students to actually use the prophecy, the spirit of prophecies, actual wording into some of his lectures to make them more relevant. And when he was given permission to go back into some of the archives, he started finding some things that maybe weren't quite right. 
like the fact that she apparently didn't give up eating unclean foods, which she determined were oysters, pork, all of those things, and meat in into the 1890s, which meant that she was, you know, well into her 60s or 70s before she really gave it up. Um, and did she even then? I'm not 100% sure. So there's been a lot of challenges, but there's some really good books. Um, Walter Ray wrote The White Lie, um, again, excommunicated. So there's already information out there to say that Ellen G. White didn't give up meat. Um, I don't know. It, it's very hard. The, I think one of the first people in Australia that came as a medical missionary, he got um, vitamin B12 deficiency, I think, and he got very, very sick. He almost died, and they wrote letters back to Ellen G. White. He was determined to follow her message to the letter, and they and she told him to eat eggs. So, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 an interesting thing. And, and again, this messaging that vegetarian and veganism are safe, it's a message that goes out in social media. It's a message that goes out, okay, dietitians might be being taught how to do it more safely than the general public but you don't get that message and people think they'll just do it on their own whereas if you do low carb healthy fat on your own it's pretty simple to eat meat and veg or pretty simple to eat you know unprocessed food but it's not simple to eat vegetarian and vegan foods without eating highly processed things that are promoted and made by the corporate church they produce over 40 different products uh, 140 different products they Sanitarium exports to 34 different countries. And, you know, it's it's massive. They are the biggest fake meat producer in Australia at this point in time. Um, so, yeah, just, you know, it's a corporate church determining. And not only that, a corporate church whose expert technical advisor is on the expert advisory committee determining the algorithms for the health star ratings, which we go into shops and purchase things based on their health star ratings, I'm not you and I, but a lot of people do. And so not only is he creating the algorithms, but he can then go back to sanitarium and tweak their products to fit within those algorithms. So up and go, no added sugar, but with... Um, sweeteners and stevia has a five-star health star rating oh sorry i know no, no, I, I don't i, 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 I don't drink it. People. no no i love this stuff blend i i i really do and i'm just i'm so proud to know you and i and i you are to me the epitome of the feminine warrior in in this extraordinary uh, journey that you've been leading alongside your a wonderful husband, Gary, Dr. Gary Fecky, who's going to also be a guest on this podcast. Yes. I will release them uh, in chronological order so that it'll be, it'll make context and we can hear he his is. story. Gary's an amazing man. He's done nothing wrong. And so all I've done is to prove, to protect, <laughs> actively defend my husband um, and his message because. It's so important. 
Okay, so people listening to this or watching this are going, okay, Belinda, right, I'm on board now. What do I do? Well, that's why you need to listen to Gary. <laughs> <laughs> I would say you need to consider your health, and especially for people who are metabolically compromised, which most of our population are now, we need like to consider. Like diabetes, pre-diabetic kind of stuff. Oh, exactly, and you look, it's going all the way down to children. Interestingly, type 2 diabetes 50 years ago, 40 years ago, was a disease that people got when they retired. It was a build-up of insulin resistance over time. Finally, they succumbed to it. Okay, we're nearing our end of life. You know, it wasn't a huge issue to the government to have to be concerned about because these people were retired, maybe going to nursing homes. It's still an issue, and please don't get me wrong, I don't think it's not an important thing, but that was how it was perceived. Now diabetes type 2 is impacting the workplace. It's impacting families. Gary saw a young guy who was in his 40s already losing his eyesight. He's looking at having to go on to kidney dialysis and um, having feet amputated. That was actually type 1 diabetes. But you go, why is low-carb not being recommended to these people who are so young and developing complications, which is what he's seeing? And so I think... No matter what your health status, and even children, we need to start reducing sugar and processed junk food out of their diet. And low carb for kids doesn't mean they can't have, like it, my daughter, our daughter, she goes, well, how do I do this? Because she's very, very good. She's written a brilliant article, and I'll send you the link on low carb and the affordability of it compared to the Dietitians Association of Australia's you know, high-carb diet and how it really compares cost analysis-wise because that's another thing they say, it's too expensive. But how do you do it when you've got young kids who are going to schools and have to follow the dietary guidelines? How are you sending kids to school with things when they're not allowed to, like this nut allergy, which I just said to Gary yesterday, this whole thing about peanut allergies. Peanuts are legumes, they're not nuts. So why are children not allowed to take any nuts to school when it's a legume allergy, they should not be taking soy to school. <laughs> You're that's, the first person I've spoken to publicly about this. That's so interesting. It makes no sense. It makes right? no sense. It's a legume. <laughs> so anyway, besides that, you know, how do you take kids? Well, maybe a whole grain wrap with all the yummy bits in it. It's not going to impact them if they're healthy young kids to have some whole grains, to have some fruit, to have some below ground vegetables. If they're metabolically healthy, active, well kids, and they should stay metabolically healthy, well active young adults if they have a lower carbohydrate, junk food, processed ditch diet. The World Health Organization now says that children under two should not have any added sugars. So that actually means no birthday cake. You know, they're saying children under two are being affected, their health is being affected by added sugars. And that's a powerful statement for juices, all of those things, you know, those sippy yogurts and whatever else. You know, we need to start considering what our kids are eating from a very early age, but it doesn't mean they can't eat whole foods. Yeah, and I think um, the, the key thing with all of that, uh, you know, eat what you want, understand what the hell it is. Know what you're yes. eating. And if you knew that, that whole grains aren't 
as good for you as people made out. You wouldn't eat them. You wouldn't feed them to your kids. You wouldn't. You, you... <laughs> but, you know, it's what's achievable as well. And I think as you go through life, yeah, it's just it's it's ditching the things and especially when so many people have got metabolic health issues. Well, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Blinder. And I think the whole argument regarding affordability, right, I think is a load of bullshit, excuse yeah. my French, because – since I've been, since I, I went keto and then I went carnivore and I've sort of gone, I've been dirty carnivore for lack of a better word, um, recently just experimenting with um, reintroducing some plants um, because I feel like my gut health has improved through the roof. Mm-hmm. I don't waste hardly anything. I never uh, throw anything away. I had Anna and I, my fiance and I had beef ribs, sorry, pork ribs from uh, Meat and Wine Co. recently mm-hmm. as a, a two-year anniversary um, dinner. And we kept the fucking bones and put them into the bone broth that I just made the other day. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and like, I haven't had to go to the dentist in about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. I haven't had to go to the, the GP. I only went to get some blood work done to check my health. Yes. Like, I, my, the cost of, like, living has, has gone down because I've not – and I eat less frequently. So that, that's my thoughts on that whole affordability. And what price can you put on living well into your hundreds? What price do you pay? Exactly. And Gary has come off 10 medications. Like it's ridiculous, the argument. Yeah, exactly. What did that cost us and also the society? Because it's the healthcare budget that, you know, it's um, a lot of it's coming out of as well. And costs, as you say, going to doctors it's it's about waste, but don't just think about that. Think about the environmental waste. We're not buying stuff that's wrapped. You know, how much less wrapping are we using as well for all that throwaway waste that people are complaining about? You know, it's it changes your lifestyle so much, but it does. It changes your waste massively. And the, the numbers around uh, from a carbon emission point of view, it's about 10% comes from the medical and pharmaceutical industry. Yes. So, you know, if you think about to get rid of the need for majority of pharmaceutical, which if people came off the medication, like I did, like Gary did, you know, like it's just, it's, for me, it's an absolute no-brainer and you're an idiot if you listen to this and you decide to take no action. And I'll <laughs> happily trigger people with that because it, the impact on my life and, the, and the, the life of my family, my younger brother and his wife have adopted a low-carb, protocol for their family and yes. the kids they got three under six at the moment with a four, fourth one on the way four under seven it'll be and their oldest daughter has is flourishing and the the second Absolutely. youngest son don't get um rashes from being on the grass anymore their cognitive function is ridiculous their energy they don't get sick you know anywhere near as often like and the youngest mm-hmm. um son has been eating meat um, the whole time. And and when my sister-in-law was pregnant with him, she, um, for the first time after reintroducing uh, red meat, her iron levels stayed normal for the first of the three pregnancies rather than being low. And that child is flourishing in the top, like top percentiles of development, cognitive function. The kids are happy. Like it's no accident, you know. Um, and she didn't put on any weight with that third pregnancy. She actually got leaner and she was just doing like Kelly Hogan, eating meat patties uh, amongst other things. So, um, you know, 
that's one of many, many examples that I've seen of people that are thriving, not just surviving, but thriving. Thriving. And we've just got to challenge these associations that are protecting industry, like the Dietitians Association, Diabetes Australia, or Heart Foundation. These associations are protecting industry. They're band-aiding sick care and they're providing false information, misinformation. Um, Baker IDI is meant to be the peak, you know, diabetes information. Um, they've taken it down from their website since I highlighted it at a talk I did for nurses in, in Tassie. But their recommendation, when I put their recommendations for someone with gestational diabetes into a Foodworks app, which is what dietitians use to work out how many carbs and calories and whatever else are in it, they were recommending if people chose to take out, which is what our guidelines recommend, meat or meat alternatives, if they swapped out the meat and the dairy and put in legumes and, you know, the dairy alternatives and things, 88 and a half teaspoons of glucose sugar per day. Jesus Christ. How is anyone meant to cope as someone who's got diabetes, gestational diabetes, on a glucose load like that? Okay, it was less if you chose um, animal proteins and fats, but our guidelines aren't recommending them. And so people would think they're doing the right thing. Um, I don't know. And so this just challenges everything. I think while these associations are still band-aiding sick care, I'm going to still keep being loud. And, yes, they're idiots if, if they're not hearing this message and starting to question things themselves because they have to. <laughs> it's about us. It's about our health and the health of our families and taking back control taking back control of our health. And we just need to vote with our feet, really, don't we? Yes. That's the key thing, I, I think, I feel is the only way to attack this um, front on, just take away the dollars from the people that, you know, are funding a lot of this stuff. So, um, Belinda, we could talk about this stuff, I'm sure, for many, many more hours, and, and um, I don't I don't think this will be the last time that you and I discuss this type of stuff <laughs> in this type of forum um, is there any sort of key takeaway that you'd like to finish on before we wrap this up? I think the key takeaway is be inquisitive. You know, think about your health and look into what's being prescribed to you. Ladies and gentlemen, Belinda Fetke. Thanks, Laban. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training where I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.